Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. And so what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. In this episode of Filter, we delve into fascinating topics with Joshua Rasmussen, a professor of philosophy at Azusa Pacific University and the author of Who Are You Really? We'll explore the deep implications of philosophy of mind, consciousness, and their relevance to Christian apologetics and worldview. We discussed the debates surrounding foundational reality and philosophy of mind, as well as explored the intriguing realms of consciousness and artificial intelligence. In this episode, you will gain new insights into what it means to be human and how these concepts intersect with matters of faith and reason. Joshua Rasmussen is an associate professor of philosophy, and his area of expertise is analytic metaphysics, with a focus on basic categories of reality, such as minds, state of affairs, and necessary existence. He is the author of several books, including Defending the Correspondence Theory of Truth, Necessary Existence, and the book that we discussed in this episode, Who Are You Really? He is also the founder of the Worldview Design Training Center, which brings together explorers in the project of building a great worldview. Before we get into this episode, let me encourage you quickly just to subscribe to Filter wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss out on any of our future episodes. You can also sign up for email updates at the show notes for this episode so that you can be included on any future episodes that we release. Also, if you've been helped by this episode or any of our other, our other episodes here on Filter, let me encourage you to leave Filter a rating and review and share this show with your friends. Leave Filter a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also, write a review on Apple Podcasts. Whenever you take these simple steps, it'll only take a minute of your time, but it greatly helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into this great conversation that I got to have with Joshua Rasmussen. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Yeah, great to have you on. Uh, I've been looking forward to it, and uh, it, it took us a while to uh, land on a date that worked, and so I'm glad that we did. And uh, yeah, man, just excited to have you on. Let's get started by tell us about yourself, what you do, and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, so I like to tell people that the most important thing about me is something in common with everybody else, which is that I'm a person. And that's actually the topic of the book that we're going to be talking about. Uh, what are persons? What? How do we come to be? But um, but also, in addition to being a person, I have some other qualities. So. I, as I was telling you before the show, I have five kids now. Um, the youngest is 11 months, and he is crawling up the stairs and then gliding down our stairs, which is kind of scary to watch, but I'm also impressed that he's able to do that. Just kind of glides down those stairs. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I teach philosophy at Azusa Pacific, and my kind of core passion is to try to figure things out at the most fundamental level, uh, whatever I'm thinking about. So my research has been on the foundations of existence. Uh, my kind of previous work was on trying to build a bridge of understanding the nature of fundamental reality. And then my most recent work has been looking through the window of consciousness and the nature of ourselves to see into fundamental reality through that window as well. So that would be kind of I would say my, my biggest passion is to try to understand things 
at a foundational level because I think that can lay a platform for understanding many of the things that are practical to life, like how should we live our lives. If we can understand things at the foundational level, I find that it puts light on my feet for living in this world. Yeah, so the work that you do is called Philosophy of Mind, and it's exploring consciousness and experiences you described before, but for those in our audience who aren't aware of Philosophy of Mind, and you know, even for myself, my, my master's degree is in uh, Christian apologetics, and so I took several philosophy classes, but it's been a while, and so even I feel like I need a refresher on all that's entailed in philosophy of mind. So as a philosopher of mind, would you explain to us what this field is, what the goals are, what your work in this field has been like? Yeah, so the field of the philosophy of mind is devoted to understanding the nature of minds. But then you might wonder, well, what is a mind? And actually, this field is, is thinking of mind in a very broad way to include anything that occurs within consciousness. Uh, this will include not just thoughts. You know, we usually associate thinking with our minds, but it will also include feelings, uh, sensations. Now, philosophers of mind are interested in understanding how sensations could exist. How could they arise? Uh, we'll probably talk about this hard problem of consciousness. This hard problem is a problem of understanding how we could explain the emergence of feelings, like the feeling of love or the feeling of happiness, right? How, how could these things emerge in our world? And so philosophers are really trying to understand what are, what are feelings? Um, do they even exist? It, it, could, could it be that feelings are an, an illusion in some way? Or if they do exist, how did they come to exist? So these are some of the, the questions in the philosophy of mind. And as I mentioned, my interest in this is rooted in even a more, let's say, like a bigger picture interest in just understanding reality. And so my interest in the philosophy of mind grows out of my area of um, metaphysics, which just has to do with trying to understand the, the nature of reality. What is this reality? So that, that's kind of how I think of my work in the philosophy of mind, connecting up with bigger questions. Obviously, this also connects up to questions that would be of great interest to your audience about the existence of God, uh, a supreme conscious being, and how we relate to God. And that is, in fact, the topic of, of the book um, that I, I wrote most recently. So, so yeah, so the philosophy of mind deals with consciousness. Also, it deals with actions. Um, how do we perform actions, especially if our actions are guided by conscious intentions? If I consciously intend to raise my hand, okay, uh, how does that conscious intention translate into my hand actually moving up? How does that actually work? And so philosophers of mind often work in concert with scientists, brain scientists, neuroscientists, to try to analyze the empirical data in light of a wider set of considerations, um, which we can probably discuss together. Mm. That's good. It's so interesting. Uh, I'm, whenever I was studying philosophy for different classes in, uh, in my graduate work, I remember uh, in the area of, of, I really loved metaphysics, but not every single area of metaphysics. Some of the, uh, <laughs> some of the, the branches uh, really, really graded against me, but others I really enjoyed. And, and mine was one of them, found them interesting. So. Um, so your book is really, is working through these ideas, like you said. Uh, the book is called Who Are You Really? It just came out. And so what are you arguing in this book? What are you trying to accomplish through uh, Who Are You Really? 
Most importantly, what I want to do is empower the reader on their search to see things for themselves. So I open up with a chapter on the lights that you have, the light to investigate reality. Um, one of the lights is your ability to be aware of your own consciousness, your own feelings and your own thoughts right within. Another light would be the light of reason. And then I also talk about a scientific approach to organizing the data. And then ultimately what I do is I try to model my own journey to invite the reader to kind of join me in this journey into this, this inquiry into who we are. The emerging thesis of the book is that who we are is deep, okay? And let me say a little bit more about that. Um, if, if you imagine a tree with roots that go deep into the ground, you might wonder how deep do those roots go into the ground? Hmm. Consciousness, our existence in a way, is like a tree that emerges from the ground. And we have roots that go deep, deep, deep into the soil of reality. And a question that many philosophers of mine have been asking is, how deeply rooted are we into reality? In the end, I end up drawing out a thesis that would imply that in order for us to exist at all, our roots must go all the way down to the foundation of all of reality. So we don't emerge out of rocks. We don't emerge out of sand. We don't emerge out of carbon atoms. Instead, we emerge out of the fundamental stuff of existence. And I talk about what kind of stuff that could be in order for us to exist. But that would be the... the, the kind of the big thesis, what I call a mind-first approach, that consciousness, conscious being, is foundational to all of reality, and that we ourselves, this was an update of my own thinking as I did my research for the book. Before doing the book, I had contributed to the field of philosophy of mind, uh, publishing various articles, and I had been thinking about this topic, not writing on a popular level, but just kind of thinking in the background, even as I was doing my other work, and so I had a general mind-first theory in my own mind, but I didn't yet integrate that theory with a theory of our existence, our origin, our minds, how we're connected mm. to fundamental reality. Mm. And a kind of transformation or update my own thinking has been to understand our being in the image of God in a way that's very, very deep, that this is not just a metaphor, being in the image of God, that metaphysically, to use that word again, metaphysically, the very nature of us is tied and rooted. Those roots go all the way down into the very nature of God in order for us to exist. So that's the big thesis, that we're deeply rooted and that mind is fundamental to all things. Yeah, that's so good. Um, and th this is why I was saying that like, I get excited about this area of metaphysics and I've been looking forward to talking to you because just this gets me excited. Now, there's, Me too. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of people in our audience, though, who, you know, they have um, no experience with philosophy, especially academic philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, a, a lot of this is, uh, is there's a big learning curve here. And so in order for the audience to really be able to appreciate what you're talking about by mind first, and even for me to be able to you know, understand it better than I do now, can you uh, just I explain in a little bit more detail, you know, maybe get down to just kind of the elementary, um, an elementary explanation of what you mean by um, the f searching for the foundation of reality. Yeah. You know what that means? I, I, like I said, for those who've, who, who've done some reading in uh, philosophy or apologetics, they, they understand what you're saying, but you know, there's people in the audience, <laughs> you, know, who, you, know, you know, like 
if you had to explain this to my mom, she, she hasn't read any philosophy. What does that mean by, uh, what do you mean when we were talking about searching for what's at the bottom? What is the foundational element of reality and so on? Yeah, thank you for this. Um, especially because the audience that I'm trying to reach in this book is a broad audience that um, I'm imagining three different people coming to the book. Um, so one person has, would be, let's say your mom. I mean, you know, I don't know your mom, but um, let's just assume that your mom hasn't been studying philosophy, yeah. wouldn't know any of the technical terms. Okay, yeah. So I'm imagining I had, so even as I was doing my edits, I would have, you know, the, the person who's just has no training in philosophy at all. And I have them in mind as I'm reading through. It's not easy reading, it's dense. But I define all the terms so that you could, if, if you're very persistent, you can understand every single thing um, through the course of reading it. At least that's my goal. Um, another class of uh, another person would be just the, the sort of curious college student who maybe has read some science and some philosophy on this topic. And then third, I, I actually have experts in mind. So I try to go deep so that even the experts are going to take something out of, out of the book. But because I'm appealing to a wide audience, I take some time in the beginning of the book to also kind of clarify what my approach is as a philosopher. Because some people worry that philosophers are sort of spinning webs of reason around their perspective, maybe rationalizing a perspective, but they're, they're not really anchoring their views to something concrete that we can test, mm -hmm. something that we can sort of yeah. touch or get our hands on. Yeah. And so one of the things I, I try to talk about is the value of collecting observations and approaching this in a kind of scientific way. And by that, what I mean is you make observations. So you, you observe a tree out there. Okay. You, you just look at that tree and then you notice that you're looking at that tree. Now this may sound basic, right? But already this is significant because it implies that within reality, is a power to notice something. So you, you're looking at the tree. Now you're noticing that you're looking at the tree, right? You're noticing it. So noticing is a is something that's real. Then what I want to do is I want to come up with hypotheses that can explain or account for the data that we're collecting. So here I just use the example of noticing that there's a tree. Okay, we we there's that. There's noticing there's a tree. So I have a whole chapter on perception, which is about how you can notice anything, how you can notice even your thoughts, how you can notice your feelings, how you can notice trees. How is that even possible? And so I collect more observations and I come up with hypotheses to investigate this. As far as the theory of mind being first and kind of what that means, the way that I think about this is if you imagine taking some Legos and you're building a castle, okay, out of the Legos, and let's say somebody comes along and they ask you, could you take those Legos and produce or build a being that can notice trees? Okay, C can you do that? Can you build a being that can see trees, have the experience of seeing a tree? Doesn't just act like it sees trees. It literally is a being who can be consciously aware of trees. So you start with some blue Legos and you begin building the being, <laughs> the, the noticing. Okay, you start building that. And already you have a kind of challenge. I call this a construction challenge. It's the challenge of seeing how, in principle, those blue Legos could form 
the noticing of a tree? How is that actually possible? And a big part of what I do in the book is, is make the case that in order to even notice that there's a tree, in order to notice, and that's just one example, to notice that you're feeling curious, the feeling of curiosity. In order to have these kind of experiences, you need the right materials. Mm. And I think intuitively we can appreciate that blue Legos, okay, the blueness of the Lego doesn't let our mind see that that's the right material. In fact, I would go further through analysis of blueness, just really awareness of blueness and awareness of what it's like from the inside to have feelings. We can actually, it's not that we don't see that blue is the wrong material, okay? That, that blue doesn't make the difference between not seeing and, and seeing, not noticing a tree and noticing a tree. Um, but that we can actually see that, that it's not just that we don't see, it's that we do see that we need a different material. Um, blue is not going to do. Now, you switch the Legos to red, does that make the difference? No, clearly not. The color is not going to be a relevant difference. Hmm. Legos themselves are probably not the right materials. Um, we could talk more about what materials are the right materials, but just to come back to kind of the big picture thesis, my goal is to try to argue that in order to have noticing trees come to exist, you need to have the kind of material that I would call a conscious being. Um, it's the kind of being that is capable of having conscious experience. That's the kind of being that's able to notice things. And so when I say that a conscious being is fundamental to reality, basically what I'm saying is that you've got to actually start with a conscious being as one of your basic building blocks. You can't start with Legos to build conscious beings. You have to start with a conscious being as a basic building block and then from that basic building block, I argue that through reconfiguring that being, you could actually build everything else. Well, it, it can build everything else. It's not that you're building, right? It's just conceptually, I guess, you're trying to build your reality in your mind. But what you're using the basic building blocks, and it's those basic building blocks that then build everything else. So in simple terms, you could think of this as basically saying, if God is fundamental, or by God now I mean just minimally some kind of intelligent, conscious, uh, foundation. I want to use the word foundational, but you know what I mean, a building block. God is the basic building block. God, God is able to then be the architect of the rest of reality, including beings like us. Yeah. Yeah, so if, if I could try to summarize it, and you can correct me, you're saying it's looking at all of the different materials that there are in our world, and everything that we know of that exists, uh, and I, I assume you would uh, include things that are you know seen and unseen yes um, what is necessary for everything else to exist is, That's is it. that correct yeah the, the foundational thing would be necessary for everything else to exist yes okay it's, cool. yeah excellent so what would be the alternative to uh to mind being the uh, the the foundational reality what are some of the other materials that people argue that you're you know presenting this alternative to yeah, so the main alternative is that no mind is foundational. Okay, that, that's the mindless first <laughs> you, right? No mind is foundational. And um, I suppose you could have a kind of mixing where you have mind comes from the mindless, and then the mindless comes from mind, and then the mind comes from some mindless before that, and you have this kind of infinite regress, okay? Mm -hmm. But even if you have this sort of infinite regress of alternating mind and mindless, mind and mindless, you could still ask, at any given moment of time, what's the most 
fundamental building blocks uh, that allow everything else to exist at that moment. And I would make the argument that the two main views here are going to be that it's either something that has the power of consciousness, the power of awareness, or it's not going to have that. It's going to be completely devoid of that power of consciousness. Okay. So now we have an umbrella theory called the mindless first theories. These are the theories that start with mindless building blocks. You could think of atoms smashing each other, or if atoms are states of waves in, let's say, a quantum field. The quantum field, we can just imagine, for sake of argument here, is based in complete mindless uh, motions or mindless states. So now this mindless first view divides into different views. And roughly, kind of at a big picture division, we could divide the views this way into three types. Um, either the mindless stuff turns into other mindless stuff, and there's never any mind anywhere, ever. The, in this case, there's no consciousness. Um, so you're not conscious. I'm not conscious. Okay, This is one of the views that maybe a lot of people who are not in philosophy of mind might hear this view and say, wait, 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 what are you saying? Are you serious? Are you literally saying this is a view? Uh, this is a view, um, and there are some motivations for the view in terms of how to fit mind into the fundamental mind, uh, a fundamentally mindless world. But this is called eliminativism. There's different forms of eliminativism depending on which aspects of mind you eliminate, but the most ro uh, extreme form would be just to eliminate all aspects of mind. So there's no thinking, there's no feeling, there's no conscious intentions. So that, that's one, one version of the mindless first view. Mm -hmm. A second version of the mindless first view would be a kind of reductionist view where we analyze consciousness in terms of mindless states. So just to illustrate this, um, let's say you're feeling sharp pain. Okay. Now you could poke yourself in this moment. I'm poking my, I'm giving myself a little bit of pain just to demonstrate this from my own experience. <laughs> so you can have some pain. And then the question is, well, what is that pain? And some philosophers of mine would say the very nature of that pain, what it is to be in that state of pain is for atoms that are mindless to come into a kind of certain state. Um, different theories characterize the state in different ways. But one way of thinking about this would be that if the atoms form, let's say, a neurological state that functions in a certain way, then that pain is that functional state of the mindless atoms. That's what, this, that's what the feeling of pain is. This is a reductionist view. And many, many philosophers of mind who go into this territory have arguments against the reductionist view from apparent differences between conscious experience and then the molecules themselves. And this leads to a third option, which would be a kind of um, mindless first emergentism. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm saying mindless first emergentism because there's another form of emergentism that I argue for in the, in the book, which is a mind first emergentism. And so I, I want just people to be clear that in describing the mindless first emergentism, that's not the same as emergentism. A lot of people hear that term emergentism and they think mind emerges out of mindless matter. That's a certain kind of emergentism. So the mindless first emergentism would be the idea that once you get the atoms forming into certain chemical reactions 
and I'm using the term atoms here sort of loosely. I think we understand with our contemporary physics that even the nature of atoms um, gets analyzed in terms of prior states, uh, states of a quantum field, and then there's different theories about how that works. But just for neutrality, I'm just going to use the term atom, um, kind of leaving open what the nature of atoms are, except just to say, assume they're mindless, and they come into configurations of a brain, and then through certain configurations, uh, there's this other kind of reality that just emerges, which mm -hmm. is the reality of thinking, feeling, yeah. wondering how we got here. So those would be the three main uh, mindless first theories about our existence. Yeah, I'm trying to remember, uh, C.S. Lewis had a succinct little argument against that last uh, theory. I can't remember what, how he put it, though. I don't know if you remember. Are you thinking about his argument from reason? Uh, that uh, I mean, he probably has different arguments here, but one of them, which Alvin Plantinga kind of picked up and popularized, is this argument that the sort of mindless, non-rational motions aren't themselves a sufficient ground for rational thought. So that if yeah, yeah. you have a mindless first view, then your reasons for believing the mindless first view are grounded in mindlessness. Mm -hmm. And that creates a kind of interesting type of objection where, or let's say a challenge. Um, I actually do talk about this in the book when I talk about how to generate rational thoughts. And there are different ways of developing this. And, and I try to be, let's say, sensitive to various kinds of replies. But in the end, I do support this kind of C.S. Lewis argument that if you have, just to kind of illustrate this, if you have a tree mindlessly blowing in the wind and the tree just randomly begins to carve a message in the sand and it, it carves the message, the universe has an even number of electrons. Okay. Now, if you saw that, that would be so unlikely that you might think, you know, maybe that tree is not completely mindless. Okay, maybe there's some intelligence behind the scenes, right? But let's just assume that was completely accidental. There was no intelligence. And let's say we know this. Um, well, in that case, it would be hard to sort of believe that what it's saying there is true, um, that the universe has, you know, maybe it's even, maybe it's odd. But if it's just produced randomly, that doesn't seem to suggest that it's produced. It's not a reliable um, belief forming mechanism. So yeah, so there is this kind of challenge. This isn't the main challenge that I raise, but it is actually one I do briefly point to this as well, this kind of C.S. Lewis challenge from reason. Mm. Yeah, is this, this the is one a... you were thinking about, or was this a different yeah, one? Yeah, that was it. That was it. I just yeah. couldn't, I was trying to remember okay. how he said it, and, um, and, and that, that was it, you know, yeah. Um... Well, he talks about evolution, you know, because he, he says that if we have an evolutionary process, that produces us, there's kind of two ways we can think about this. Either the evolutionary process itself emerges out of a kind of intelligence, or it emerges out of just mindless, uh, mindless beginnings, right? Mm -hmm. And so then the, the, so he's not targeting the mind first evolutionary view. Um, there's different ways of uh, cashing that out, but he's drawing out the idea that if you have a mindless first evolutionary view, then you can then have reasons to undermine your very confidence in that very view because your very reasons are products of mechanisms aimed for your survival, not necessarily thereby aimed for having true beliefs. And if I could just add one more note, because I'm sure there's somebody watching this itching with the objection that 
if it's a true belief, it's more likely to contribute to, to your survival. Hmm. And that turns out to actually be a very non-trivial um, claim or argument to make uh, when you sort of dig into the details of this, that mm -hmm. if it's, if it's um, not a true belief, it's less likely to contribute to your survival. Uh, in fact, kind of more recently, Donald Hoffman, a, coming at this from a scientific point of view, not from a, a philosopher's point of view, has joined up with some other scientists to derive a theorem from some axioms about complex adaptive systems. These are systems where you have self-replicating structures that can evolve through natural selection. And the theorem is about basically the improbability of having our beliefs actually match uh, an external world that, yeah, that, that, that are true beliefs. Uh, that is very, very improbable. And so he actually uses that to find a pathway to a similar kind of conclusion that I end up arguing for in the book. Um, not that our faculties are unreliable with respect to being aware of states within consciousness, but that we can't really trust our faculties to represent the external world in the way that we're, in a way that matches the external world, in a, in a, in a way that matches with how we kind of represent them. Uh, the pieces in, inside of our own minds. So all that to say, I'm aware that there is a complex set of issues around that argument, but I'm glad you brought this up because I do think that is an important kind of challenge to the, the sort of mindless emergentist view. How does rationality emerge out of mindless dust? Yeah. So if we establish and argue that mind is uh, the, the mind first view, that mind is foundational reality, then what, is, what, do you, what, do, what do we say or how do we discover what that mind is? If it is a you know, singular conscious being, is it something like, um, as people have said, a collective consciousness? Is, it, is foundational reality just you know, millions of individual minds uh, you know, working on their own? What is that mind in the mind first approach? Yeah, I love this question. Thank you. Um, so I, as a metaphysician, I'm starting with the question, what is it to say what something is? Okay, so I'm starting <laughs> even there, right? So because you're asking me, well, what is this thing? And then I'm thinking, okay, well, what is it to say what something is? Uh -huh. And my answer to that question would be to list attributes that it has. And so um, we can list different attributes to begin to say what it is. And you can say something about what it is without saying everything about what it is. In fact, I would even argue that there's a sense in which um, there's always kind of there are always more attributes that you can identify of a thing, perhaps in its relationship to other things. And so I'm going to begin to give you just a few attributes to begin to kind of answer that question. Um, so first, if it's a fundamental mind, then it would have a power of consciousness. Um, second, if it's fundamental then it's going to be uncaused itself. That is to say, it's not built up out of other prior building blocks, as you put it so nicely earlier. It is that which allows everything else to exist. So there's nothing prior to it that allows it to exist. Um, it's the foundational element. So those are two attributes, the power of, of consciousness. Um, it's being uncaused. Um, and then a third attribute will be related to the idea that there could be many minds that are fundamental. Now, I don't go into this too explicitly in this book, although 
I do touch on it implicitly because I talk about what's called a combination problem. The combination problem is the problem of seeing how many different things can come together to form a unified conscious experience. I want to illustrate this because I think this is so powerful as a device to understanding the significance of our existence. It's so powerful as a device, but so few people realize what this is. Um, many in the audience may have heard of the hard problem of consciousness. Some in the audience may have heard of this combination problem, but not very many know about this combination problem. So just to illustrate this a bit, let's imagine that right now um, you are thinking about eating some pizza. Okay, let's, I'm just going to imagine that's the case. Maybe now you are thinking about that since I gave you the idea. Let's imagine you're thinking about eating some pizza, and let's say let's say that I am having a feeling of joy. Okay, so I'm having a feeling of joy, and you're having thoughts about pizza. Yeah, those usually go together. Yeah, yeah those can go together. Yeah. Now let's say that um, somebody had the project of building a being that could have both the feeling of joy and the thoughts about pizza. It's one being that has both, okay? And they can use any resources they want, and so we offer ourselves as resources. So I say, hey, you know what? I've got some joy over here. My friend over here, Aaron, has some thoughts about pizza. You can use us. Can you combine us to produce a single being that has the joy and the thoughts in one conscious experience? So this is what the guy does in order to build the single being. He's, he puts you on top of my shoulders. So now we're adjacent to each other. You're stacked on top. You're having the thoughts about people, uh, the pizza. I'm having the joy. Have we thereby formed a single being that has both the joy and the thoughts about pizza in its own consciousness? Clearly not, right? I mean, you're, you're experiencing your thoughts and I'm experiencing my joy. You might also have joy, right? But you don't have my joy, right? Because we're two beings. The combination problem is the problem of seeing how to take two different things and combining them to form a single being that has a single conscious experience of all the different elements of the joy, of the thoughts, of the intentions. One of the things that we notice about ourselves is not merely that we have thoughts and feelings. We also notice that those thoughts and feelings are bound together in a single field of conscious awareness. This is so, so important. Like just, yeah. This is one of those things that's so familiar, but it's so significant that there are yeah. single yeah. units of consciousness bound together. Um, many people bring up this binding problem with respect to seeing how mindless atoms could come together to form a single unified consciousness. I mean, if, if one part of your brain is feeling happy and another part of your brain is, feeling thought, is having thoughts, how do those parts combine? You know, it's not just you can just have one next to the other. I mean, I could come next to you, right? I could shake your hand. I could come next to you. That doesn't form another being. So in principle, this is kind of a conceptual question. It's an empirical question, but also just kind of a conceptual question. Like, in principle, how can you take mindless atoms, smash them together to form that unified being? But also, this is also a problem, not just for combining mindless things, but also combining mental things. And this is why I would argue that the fundamental building block of reality, the foundational thing, can't just be many different either mindless things or many different mental things. Because in either case,
that's not going to provide a foundation for, uh, for, for my existence or for your existence, unless you and I are among the fundamental atoms of reality, right? But then if we are among the fundamental atoms of reality, then there's this deeper question about like what unifies those atoms. Why are they all in the same reality? Yeah. And I would make the argument that if you can have a unified total theory out of which uh, everything else can be explained, then that theory is going to have more explanatory power and it's going to be intrinsically more probable because it has a simplicity to it. So I know that now I did use some technical terms there, intrinsically yeah. more probable, but you know, just what I mean there is yeah. a simpler theory, other things being equal is going to be more probable than a theory that has more parts, like more ways to go wrong. And so that, that would be why I would add this third characteristic to this fundamental mind. So just to review, it, um, it has con power of consciousness. That's characteristic number one. Second, it's uncaused. So it's a building block for everything else. That's number two. And then number three, it's unified. Okay, it's not a disparate set of atoms or a disparate set of minds. It's a unified mind. Mm -hmm. um, and so that would be a way of identifying it via those three attributes. Obviously, we could continue to list more attributes, but those would be three, I think, important attributes of fundamental reality. Yeah. And so with, so with those attributes built, which, you know, which conclusion, conclu sorry, conclusion, you know, does that lead us to, to, say, to try to describe, well, you know, like what is or who is this, this mind that is fundamental to all things? Is it, uh, is it a singular consciousness you know singular personality that is you know um that that uh, brings about everything else um you know w w so what do we say about what that mind is well again um i can continue to add more attributes to the list right um so it's it's unified um i like the the point there you just made that um it's not only uncaused but it's also because it's the foundation of everything else it's the source of all else so it's a sort of a creator, a source of all else. That'd be like a, a fourth attribute. Um, and, you know, it might be that there's a particular attribute you're, you might be kind of looking for um, in terms of how we identify it. And if there is, you know, feel free to bring that on, onto the table. But this is how I'm going to identify its nature is just continue to list more attributes. Um, in, in my own view, I, my understanding is that this foundational mind also has a power to enter into various states. So um, in, in this unfolding of the human story, we have a guy named Jesus, for example. Who's that? Well, uh, here's an idea. Um, Jesus is a um, representation or a state, a, a, a human form of the fundamental mind. And so this would be like an additional um, candidate attribute of the fundamental mind. The fundamental mind has this power to enter into states and can take on a human form to relate to human beings. Um, would, if, if it has that power, I would think it would also have the power to take on other forms. Like maybe it could, it could manifest itself as, as a dove or as a, as a butterfly to relate to the butterflies if it wishes. So I, I do think it has these powers as well. Um, this is part of kind of a larger theory I have, a fundamental reality that its powers are unconstrained and unbounded and unlimited. And so in my view, it would have a power to enter into various states um, as well. So 
So yeah, so we could keep adding more and more attributes to sort of identify the nature of, of this sort of foundational reality. And I think at this point, I mean, we could use the term God um, to describe it um, because God is characterized uh, classically as a foundational being that um, is sort of ultimate and produces everything else. And it's interesting for me to see some philosophers of mine, Bernardo, Bernardo Castro, for example, arriving at a vision of fundamental rea reality as a, a naturalist philosopher who's not coming at this from a theistic perspective. He's, he's got, um, he's well educated in this. He's got a PhD in computer science, another PhD in philosophy. And he's arrived at a kind of mind first view where he, I've actually seen him um, talk on some podcasts about how he would use the term God to identify this my mm -hmm. mental uh, foundation, um, e even as a naturalist, okay? Even as someone yeah. who call himself a, a naturalist in a kind of a broad sense that can include mentality at the base, a kind of universal consciousness as he would describe it. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's what I was, you know, I was wanting to figure out how do we move, you know, what, what are the steps to go from establishing mind first to as a Christian, like how do I then connect that to my commitment, my, my belief and commitment to a personal God? You know, I, was yeah. I was wondering how do we, how do the ideas relate and how do we work from one to the other? Do, how does a mind first uh, principle lead us to, lead us to the God that we believe in, in, in scripture? So, yeah, yeah so that, that's that. what I was wanting to try to connect and work to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and even the question there about it being personal is connected to the question of the book. What does it, it what does it mean to be personal? What is personal? You know, what, what is that? And I would actually argue that the marks of being personal include the mark of conscious power, uh, the power to um, have forms of consciousness. That, that is a mark of being personal. Mm. Uh, we could add personality to it. Uh, but even there, I want to be careful because there is a way in which we kind of tend to anthropomorphize God. Uh, we read our human characteristics into the foundational reality. And even if the foundational reality, out of love for us, out of uh, care for us, can take on form that relates to us as a human, take on a human form, that doesn't mean that that human form is the fundamental description of the fundamental reality. Um, I would argue, I mean, I'm really convinced of this, is that humanness is part of creation. Um, and so to even take on a human form would be to take on a a kind of created form, if that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. So just to be clear, you know, I do think an uncreated foundation can actually take on created forms. Mm -hmm. um, this fits very well, I think, with the sort of biblical narrative of God connecting with beings. And so, you know, we we think about God in ways that relate to us. We this is this is why we sort of think about God as maybe having a beard or like being a man in the sky or something like this. But we understand, I think. That um, that's that is not the fundamental characteristic of God. This is why the biblical dis depiction of God is like you can't see God. You can see a beard. You can't see God. Not you know not as he is in his essence. And I really do think about this like if I were a butterfly, would God display himself in ways that I could understand through my instincts as a butterfly? Yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah, probably so. I mean, probably God is just much bigger than we sort of think about him from our line of sight, right? Um, so, but going back to God being personal, I want to sort of be careful that I'm not reading uh, 
my understanding of persons as humans uh, back into the foundational description of God's essence. But at the same time, I would say that the mark of being personal in a broad sense, in the sense that I would ascribe to foundational reality, would be having the powers of, of consciousness, that that would be a mark of, of personhood. Um, maybe personhood would bring more into that, maybe the power to intend. Uh, but this is going to depend, I think, on your particular concept of person, which for me is kind of an open question myself. Um, I don't kind of know how that concept blurs into other concepts. So I just kind of leave that open. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So we're blowing through our time here. And I had a few other uh, bigger questions I wanted to get into. So, uh, so let's, let's move ahead into some of these other ones. I was wanting to talk about um, consciousness and what mm -hmm. is consciousness, especially in relation to, I know this is sort of a, I get these other two, they're big questions, but sort of tangential from what you're doing. Um, but especially related to, you know, uh, AI is such a large uh, topic in our culture right now with, uh, you know, all these new AI technologies. They're not, they're not extremely new, but I guess in the forms and how popularized they are now is very new. Um, you know, people are asking at what point do these AI technologies become conscious? Is it possible for them to be con become conscious? And then that raises the question of, well, what is even consciousness? So as a philosopher of mind, how do you approach, uh, you know, these AI technologies and the questions around them of consciousness? Yeah, great question. So again, it's gonna come down to what kind of building blocks could possibly start having thoughts and feelings. And I think it's really key at this moment to recognize a difference between what it's like from your own first person perspective, having experiences, having thoughts, okay, versus a purely, let's say, perspectiveless or third person description of objects in space. And the reason why this is such an important distinction is because I think sometimes we look past the window of our own first person experience into the external world and we almost forget that the window of our first person experience is real. Like we're actually parts of reality here. And that, that third person description of objects in space doesn't include the first person description of what it's like experientially mm -hmm. to be seeing objects in space, to be feeling, uh, having feelings and having thoughts about those objects in space. So just to be kind of brief here, but I, I want to kind of lay that foundation to think about um, technologies and computer chips because I think once we can really understand that the kind of beings that we are are first-person conscious realities, I think then we can appreciate the great challenge of how you could actually build a being like us purely out of uh, computer chips. My argument has been that you can get chat GTP, GPT yeah. to function as if it's intelligent, but that's not enough on its own to give it actual conscious awareness of thoughts and feelings. Uh, mere functioning as if you, you, know, you, you can build something that says, I am tired. That doesn't mean it actually feels tired. And so I would actually argue that it is impossible in principle to build conscious beings using artificial intelligence. However, you can use artificial intelligence to extend and expand our powers. Uh, and these artificially intelligent beings, they're artificially intelligent, not in the sense of having conscious 
awareness of of intelligence, but rather just having a kind of functional, kind of advanced programming. Um, I, I think of this as sort of advancing our tools. Um, and I think tools are neutral. We can use tools to advance our lives, to advance our experiences. Uh, the danger I think people worry about is if the tools start becoming our masters, start controlling us. And I think that's just going to come down to how responsible we are, uh, how much we sort of rise to the occasion and maintain our authority over our tools and not let the tools gain power over us. Yeah. Uh, and the reason why I don't want the tools to gain power over us is because they are fundamentally mindless. Uh, and I don't want mindless things controlling the mind. Uh, that, that's not the way things go. Uh, the, the mind is the boss, the foundation, uh, and the mindless is our, is our tools. I think that, that's how it can go. Mm. One more little thought on this is it's possible we could open up portals through physics for God to, and I'm going to use the term God now, is just code for the foundational mind, to create forms of consciousness within our world or to bring forms of consciousness within our world. We already experienced this in the sense of having babies. Uh, babies are places, you know, when, when, when the sperm and egg come together, I think of this as kind of like a portal in the physical domain for consciousness to enter in. So uh, I leave it wide open that we could create portals uh, through our technologies for consciousness to enter in. But my own belief is that that would only happen in coordination with, with God, with God's permission. Um, mm -hmm. So that's kind of my thought about that. Interesting. So it would take God. Yeah. So I'm thinking of the description uh, of creation whenever it says that God, you know, formed man out of the dirt. And so it would take something similar where God chooses to take not, but in this case, not dirt, but. Um, algorithms and breathe life into it, like breathe consciousness yeah. into it. Yeah, you've got it. I mean, and honestly, my understanding of the nature of dirt, what the physicists are telling me is that it's dirt is based in quantum field, which is based in algorithms, basically. So it's kind of categorically the same thing. And, um, and, and what we can do is we can make it more likely that God brings consciousness through. Um, I mean, like, for example, if... Um, uh, well, I mean, I guess I don't need to draw this out. I mean, I think it's, it's kind of obvious. Like, there are things that we can do in the physical domain that make it more likely that children are born, right? Obviously. And so maybe there's a way we could do that with our technologies. Um, but I don't really know. That's just an open. It, I don't have anything in my arguments that ruled that out in principle. But what the arguments convinced me is that God has to be involved. Um, the, the source being has to be involved for consciousness to emerge. You cannot do it without God. It, um, it's just impossible. It's just that God has set up the world so that there are things that we can do that according to the rules of the world can make God more likely uh, to participate in the production of conscious beings or to be more neutral about it in the um, allowing of consciousness to come through into other forms. So what about, okay, so that's interesting. If God could you know, allow some form of consciousness consciousness to come through an AI technology, you know, to, um, to insert a mind into the algorithm. Could another mind do that? What I mean by that is I've been, <laughs> I've been wondering if, um, if AI technology and okay, we're getting warning label. We're getting into weird territory now. All right. What I'm saying here, I'm just thinking out loud. I'm not saying that I'm committed to it. Okay. For anyone who's, who, who's listening, I'm not saying we're exploring. I'm just, I'm just exploring. 
Uh, yeah. One thing I've, I've been thinking about wondering is could AI technologies be, um, be used by, by demonic beings to sow disbelief, to corrupt truth, to e everything that they would desire to do? So if, uh, so if God could do that, could another mind do it too? What do you think? Well, so I want to separate your question into two types. It's a very interesting question. So one type of question would be, um, can beings use technologies and, and could angels and, and demonic beings use technologies like in the way that, in the ways that we can? Like we can use computers. Um, could angelic beings also create their own technologies? You know, I mean, you know, speaking of getting into the sort of esoteric territories, like maybe some... Uh, Angelic beings are capable of manifesting technologies that might appear to us as unidentified objects in, in, in the skies or something. Um, maybe they're not literally in the skies, but maybe these are technologies that are being projected into our world somehow. Okay, that, that's wide open. I don't, I don't really know. Okay, so that's, that's wide open. Um, a, a second type of question, which gets into something even more radical, um, is about the generation of a conscious form through the portal of a technology. So this would be um, kind of related to the idea of angelic beings or demonic beings um, kind of manipulating sperm and egg or just their own forms of sperm and egg just manually from the atomic level um, in order to open up portals for consciousness to sort of emerge through those, those portals and maybe tapping into um, um, laws of, of this reality. And I love the question. And again, I just have to say, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> this, is, yeah. this is just beyond my knowledge. Um, but I, I love to sort of demarcate the possibilities here um, and sort of make these distinctions because it does open up the, the door to some very interesting questions. Um, yeah, but I, I don't know. <laughs> I can't claim yeah. to know. Yeah, yeah I, I don't think anyone does. It's, it's just, it, it's interesting questions to explore. Um, and, and, and I think it's worth at least being open to the possibility, even though we don't know, you know, because I mean, I'm sure, you know, we've all heard weird stories now of AI telling people some very, very odd things. You know, the the most famous one was the, uh, I think it was Kevin Roos, or maybe it was another technology reporter at the New York Times, uh, wrote this article about how he was chatting with uh, Bing's AI technology. And I can't remember the name for it, but at some point in the conversation, the the AI took this weird turn and started saying, uh, my name's actually this. Uh, I think I think it said my name's actually Sydney, and he was like, "Oh, okay," and uh, and then started trying to convince him that he should leave his wife. And what? It, I don't yeah I don't know if you heard that story. It was no. very weird, extremely weird. And then uh, there, there's a couple other ones like that that I've heard that I don't know. Um, this one, you know, I, like the reporter wrote the story, so you know that uh, that it happened. There's a few other stories I heard that kind of sound like like urban legends. I don't know if they actually happened of AIs telling people some weird things in certain points of the conversation. And so that got me thinking like, you know, um, yeah, how could this be used by, uh, by the enemy? But anyway, we'll, we'll move on from, from that one. Uh, yeah, man, there's a few other that questions. That sounds so I interesting. Had. Yeah. I know. Very there's cool. a few other questions I had, but you know, like I said, we're running towards the end of our time here. So I just wanted to, let's try to land the plane here and wrap it up with, with everything we've talked about, with um, trying to explore the nature of minds, uh, with mind being fundamental to uh, the, the basis of reality, 
Um, and we've already gone into this a bit, but just to really try to bring it home, what's, what is the value of this and how does it fit into the work of building a Christian worldview? You know, we're talking to those in the audience right now who are committed believers and they're listening to this, trying to understand, uh, how do I understand my world better through this? How do I live as a better uh, Christian with a stronger faith in the world through listening to this? What's the value of these things we've talked about? to building our Christian worldview and, you know, defending the faith in our world today. Great. Yeah. So two sides to this. Um, one is about building our faith. And then the other is about, let's say, applying our, um, our faith. And by faith here, I'm talking about that, that, um, that intimacy with, with God, um, that spiritual connection um, with God. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, kind of like, blind belief sort of faith. Um, yeah. And so on, on the sort of building our faith, I see this inquiry into how our minds came to be as being one of the, I would say, very powerful signposts to the reality of a uh, of God, of God's existence. Um, I was kind of remarking recently that of all of the philosophers of mind who have uh, changed their view over the course of their career about whether mind is fundamental um, or whether the mindless is fundamental. All the philosophers that I, I know follow a path, if they change their view on this, towards thinking that mind is deeper in than they had thought. Um, and, 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 and because of some of these problems and challenges of understanding how mind could fit in, into, the, into the world. And I'm tempted to not overstate that because I just I don't like to overstate things, but mm -hmm. um, but I actually just don't know even a single example. Um, and, and you know I, I I go to these conferences. I know a lot of philosophers who work in this. I don't know a single example whose journey went from thinking that mind is fundamental, God exists, and then they went into the field of the philosophy of mind, and then after be, they began publishing and, and working in the field they came to think, no, 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 it's the other way. It's the mindless is first. There, there may be examples of that, but I, I don't actually know those examples. And to me, this illustrates um, a, a kind of signpost that the challenge of accounting for your existence is itself um, a pointer to the existence of the kind of being that could make you, which I think is fundamentally a, a conscious being. Um, so that's first. And then second, on applying that connection with God, uh, applying that kind of intimate relationship with God in our lives. Here, one of the outcomes of the book that I come to is that we have a very special nature rooted in God's nature. And this actually makes us very, very special beings. Uh, it makes us special beings because we are the kind of beings that are connected to the ground layer of reality. All of us are. And that our human form, our spatial configuration, that's not who we really are most fundamentally. That who we really are, we are treasures um, that are deeply rooted in, into the nature of God. And what this means practically for me is that when I encounter other people, I can, I'm encountering a great treasure, a huge and impressive treasure. And no matter how that person displays themselves, whether the hair is messy, okay, or whether their face is angry, or whether they themselves are crying and mad, or they're hurting other people. That's not who they are. And sometimes I think people just need to be treated 
as they really are uh, in the image of God. And so this inspires me that, in fact, maybe part of the challenge is when somebody is displaying who they aren't, we're tempted to treat them according to their display because that's what we see. So we're tempted to, to treat them according to who they aren't. But maybe part of the challenge is to switch that over. When, it's when they're displaying who they aren't. That's when we have an opportunity to treat them according to who they really are. The treasure that they are being in the image of God. And when we do that, in, in my experience, um, when I've done that, it's kind of against the grain. Especially if their negative um, expression feels like an attack against to me, my temptation is defend, to defend myself. But if instead I can defend them, I can treat them according to who they really are, mm. it changes the atmosphere. It's yeah. very attractive, it's transformative, and I think it really brings healing to people. A lot of times when people are expressing themselves in negative ways, it's because there's those, those broken seeds inside. And if, if we can treat people as bearers of God, um, being in the image of God, it changes the game. And so that, that's kind of an application point to the conclusions that I draw from the book, that who we really are is very, very special. I don't think we can overestimate our specialness. In Christian culture, at least for me growing up, one of the biggest um, warnings that I was often told is be careful not to be selfish. And that's an important worry, uh, warning. Be careful not to draw attention to yourself. But the other side of that is maybe losing sight that we are that God's creation is very, very valuable. Because if you're not going to bring attention to yourself, maybe that means that you're not so valuable. And what's helped me to realize is that actually, no, being in the image of God mean, means that we are valuable. We're so valuable. And then this doesn't mean now I'm going to be selfish. This means I can actually treat other people as valuable and myself as valuable, being in the image of God. Mm -hmm. So this would be my, my take-home point for the book. We are very, very valuable because we are deeply rooted into the foundation of all, of all reality. Yeah, that's excellent. Once again, the book we've been talking about is uh, Who Are You Really? by Joshua Rasmussen. If you guys are interested, I'll have a link to it in the show notes below so you can go pick up a copy and uh, read it for yourself. Like Josh mentioned earlier, it's a dense read, um, but it's worth the work. It's worth the work putting in to, uh, to read it. Read it slowly if you have to. Uh, nothing wrong with that. You know, savor it like a good meal uh, so you can understand it because as he's just pointed out, there's a lot of great, um, great treasure to be mined from it. Uh, lastly, real quick, if you want to mention before we go, another project uh, that you're doing right now, which is called Worldview Design. You want to tell us about, tell us about that before we go? Sure. Th thank you. Uh, Worldview-design.com is a place to help you build the best worldview possible. And so we have um, experts in the field in there and others very interested in building, uh, building out your worldview. And we're constantly adding new materials for people who join that. So feel free to just check that out, uh, worldview-design.com. Um, and you can check it out for free. It is a monthly subscription because we really do want to have high quality um, content and participation. So I'm very excited about that. We had just launched that in May. So thank you for letting me um, point to that for, for your listeners. Yeah, I'll link to that as well. So you guys go to the description below, click on the link to the show notes. And in the show notes, I'll have, uh, once again, the link to the book. 
the link to Worldview Design, um, and I'll include any of Josh's uh, other social media links and so on so you can uh, follow him and keep up with all this great work that he's doing. Josh, once again, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to come up to the show. I love this conversation. It's so interesting, and I know that our audience got a lot out of it too. So thank you for joining us on Filter today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch up with the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the anchor.